Book six, part one of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Rodrib. Book six, A.D. thirty-two to thirty-seven. Part One, Tiberius at Capriae. Cnaeus Domitius and Camillus Scribonianus had entered on the consulship when the emperor, after crossing the channel which divides Capriae from Sorrentum, sailed along Campania, in doubt whether he should enter Rome or possibly simulating the intention of going thither, because he had resolved otherwise. He often landed at points in the neighbourhood, visited the gardens by the Tiber, but went back to the cliffs and to the solitude of the sea-shores, in shame at the vices and profligacies into which he had plunged so unrestrainedly that in the fashion of a despot he debauched the children of free-born citizens. It was not merely beauty and a handsome person which he felt as an incentive to his lust, but the modesty of childhood in some and noble ancestry in others. Hitherto unknown terms were then for the first time invented, derived from the abominations of the place, and the endless phases of sensuality. Slaves, too, were set over the work of seeking out and procuring, with rewards for the willing, and threats to the reluctant, and if there was resistance from a relative or a parent they used violence and force and actually indulged their own passions, as if dealing with captives. At Rome, meanwhile, in the beginning of the year, as if Livia's crimes had just been discovered, and not also long ago punished, terrible decrees were proposed against her very statues and memory, and the property of Sejanus was to be taken from the exchequer, and transferred to the imperial treasury, as if there was any difference. The motion was being urged with extreme persistency, in almost the same, or with but slightly changed language, by such men as Scipio, Silenus, and Cassius, when suddenly Togonius Gallus, intruding his own obscurity among illustrious names, was heard with ridicule. He begged the Emperor to select a number of senators, twenty out of whom should be chosen by lot to wear swords and to defend his person whenever he entered the senate-house. The man had actually believed a letter from him, in which he asked the protection of one of the consuls, so that he might go in safety from Capriae to Rome. Tiberius, however, who usually combined jesting and seriousness, thanked the senators for their good will, but asked who could be rejected, who could be chosen. Were they always to be the same, or was there to be a succession? Were they to be men who had held office, or youths, private citizens, or officials? Then again, what a scene would be presented by persons grasping their swords on the threshold of the Senate-house! His life was not of so much worth, if it had to be defended by arms. This was his answer to Togonius, guarded in its expression, and he urged nothing beyond the rejection of the motion. 
Junius Gallio, however, who had proposed that the Praetorian soldiers, after having served their campaigns, should acquire the privilege of sitting in the fourteen rows of the theatre, received a savage censure. Tiberius, just as if he were face to face with him, asked what he had to do with the soldiers, who ought to receive the Emperor's orders, or his rewards, except from the Emperor himself. He had really discovered something which the divine Augustus had not foreseen or was not one of Sejanus's satellites, rather seeking to sow discord and sedition, as a means of prompting ignorant minds, under the pretence of compliment, to ruin military discipline. This was Gallio's recompense for his carefully prepared flattery, with immediate expulsion from the Senate and then from Italy. And as men complained that he would endure his exile with equanimity, since he had chosen the famous and lovely island of Lesbos, he was dragged back to Rome and confined in the houses of different officials. The Emperor, in the same letter, crushed Sextus Paconianus, an ex-praetor, to the great joy of the senators, as he was a daring, mischievous man, who pried into every person's secrets, and had been the chosen instrument of Sejanus in his treacherous designs against Caius Caesar. When this fact was divulged, there came an outburst of long-concealed hatreds, and there must have been a sentence of capital punishment, had he not himself volunteered a disclosure. As soon as he named Latinius Latiaris, accuser and accused, both alike objects of execration, presented a most welcome spectacle. Latiaris, as I have related, had been foremost in contriving the ruin of Titius Sabinus, and was now the first to pay the penalty. By way of episode, Haterius Agrippa, inveighed against the consuls of the previous year, for now sitting silent after their threats of impeaching one another. "'It must be fear,' he said, "'and not a guilty conscience, which are acting as a bond of union. But the senators must not keep back what they have heard.' Regulus replied that he was awaiting the opportunity for vengeance, and meant to press it in the Emperor's presence. Trio's answer was that it was best to efface the memory of rivalries between colleagues, and of any words uttered in quarrels. When Agrippa still persisted, Sanquinius Maximus, one of the ex-consuls, implored the Senate not to increase the Emperor's personal anxieties by seeking further occasions of bitterness, as he was himself competent to provide remedies. This secured the safety of Regulus, and the postponement of Trio's ruin. Haterius was hated all the more, one with untimely slumbers and nights of riot, and, not fearing in his indolence even the cruellest of princes, he yet plotted amid his gluttony and lust the destruction of illustrious men. Several charges were next brought, as soon as the opportunity offered, against Cotta Messalinus, the author of every unusually cruel proposal, and consequently regarded with inveterate hatred. He had spoken, it was said, of Caius Caesar, as if it were a question whether he was a man, and of an entertainment at which he was present on Augustus' birthday with the priests, as a funeral banquet. In remonstrating, too, against the influence of Marcus Lepidus and Lucius Aruntius, with whom he had disputes on many matters, he had added the remark, "'They will have the Senate's support. 
I shall have that of my darling Tiberius. But the leading men of the state failed to convict him on all the charges. When they pressed the case, he appealed to the emperor. Soon afterwards a letter arrived, in which Tiberius traced the origin of the friendship between himself and Cotter, enumerated his frequent services, and then requested that words perversely misrepresented and the freedom of table-talk might not be construed into a crime. The beginning of the Emperor's letter seemed very striking. It opened thus. May all the gods and goddesses destroy me more miserably than I feel myself to be daily perishing, if I know at this moment what to write to you, Senators, how to write it, or what, in short, not to write. So completely had his crimes and infamies recoiled, as a penalty, on himself. With profound meaning was it often affirmed by the greatest teacher of philosophy that, could the minds of tyrants be laid bare, there would be seen gashes and wounds, for, as the body is lacerated by scourging, so is the spirit by brutality, by lust, and by evil thoughts. Assuredly, Tiberius was not saved by his elevation or his solitude from having to confess the anguish of his heart and his self-inflicted punishment. Authority was then given to the Senate to decide the case of Caecilianus, one of its members, the chief witness against Cotter, and it was agreed that the same penalty should be inflicted as on Aruseus and Sanquinius, the accusers of Lucius Aruntius. Nothing ever happened to Cotter more to his distinction. Of noble birth, but beggared by extravagance and infamous for his excesses, he was now, by dignity of his revenge, raised to a level with the stainless virtues of Arontius. Quintus Servius and Minucius Thermus were next arraigned. Servius was an ex-praetor, and had formerly been a companion of Germanicus. Minucius was of equestrian rank, and both had enjoyed, though discreetly, the friendship of Sejanus. Hence they were the more pitied. Tiberius, on the contrary, denounced them as foremost in crime, and bade Caius Cestius the elder tell the senate what he had communicated to the emperor by letter. Cestius undertook the prosecution. And this was the most dreadful feature of the age— that leading members of the Senate, some openly, some secretly, employed themselves in the very lowest work of the informer. One could not distinguish between aliens and kinsfolk, between friends and strangers, or say what was quite recent, or what half-forgotten, from lapse of time. People were incriminated for some casual remark in the forum or at the dinner-table, for every one was impatient to be the first to mark his victim— some to screen themselves, most from being, as it were, infected with the contagion of the malady. Minucius and Servius, on being condemned, went over to the prosecution, and then Julius Africanus, with Seius Quadratus, were dragged into the same ruin. Africanus was from the Santones, one of the states of Gaul. The origin of Quadratus I have not ascertained. Many authors, I am well aware, have passed over the perils and punishments of a host of persons, sickened by the multiplicity of them, or fearing that what they had themselves found wearisome and saddening would be equally fatiguing to their readers. 
for myself I have lighted on many facts worth knowing, though other writers have not recorded them. A Roman knight, Marcus Terentius, at the crisis when all others had hypocritically repudiated the friendship of Sejanus, dared, when impeached on that ground, to cling to it by the following avowal to the Senate. In my position it is perhaps less to my advantage to acknowledge than to deny the charge. Still, whatever is to be the issue of the matter, I shall admit that I was the friend of Sejanus, that I anxiously sought to be such, and was delighted when I was successful. I had seen him, his father's colleague in the command of the Praetorian cohorts, and subsequently combining the duties of civil and military life. His kinsfolk and connections were loaded with honours. Intimacy with Sejanus was in every case a powerful recommendation to the Emperor's friendship. Those, on the contrary, whom he hated, had to struggle with danger and humiliation. I take no individual as an instance. All of us who had no part in his last design I mean to defend at the peril of myself alone. It was really not Sejanus of Volsni. It was a member of the Claudian and Julian houses, in which he had taken up a position by his marriage alliance. It was your son-in-law, Caesar, your partner in the consulship, the man who administered your political functions, whom we courted. It is not for us to criticise one whom you may raise above all others, or your motives for so doing. Heaven has entrusted you with the supreme decision of affairs, and for us is left the glory of obedience. And again we see what takes place before our eyes, who it is on whom you bestow riches and honours, who are the most powerful to help or to injure. That Sir Janus was such, no one will deny. To explore the prince's secret thoughts, or any of his hidden plans, is a forbidden, a dangerous thing, nor does it follow that one could reach them. Do not, senators, think only of Sejanus's last day, but of his sixteen years of power. We actually adored Asatrius and Pomponius. To be known even to his freedmen and hall-porters was thought something very grand. What then is my meaning? Is this apology meant to be offered for all without difference and discrimination? No. It is to be restricted within proper limits. Let plots against the State, murderous designs against the Emperor, be punished. As for friendship and its obligations, the same principle must acquit both you, Caesar, and us. The courage of this speech, and the fact that there had been found a man to speak out what was in all people's thoughts, had such an effect that the accusers of Terentius were sentenced to banishment or death, their previous offences being taken into account. Then came a letter from Tiberius against Sextus Vestilius, an ex-praetor whom, as a special favourite of his brother Drusus, the emperor had admitted into his own select circle. His reason for being displeased with Vestilius was that he had either written an attack on Caius Caesar as a profligate, or that Tiberius believed a false charge. For this Vestilius was excluded from the prince's table. He then tried the knife with his aged hand, but again bound up his veins, opening them once more, however, on having begged for pardon by letter and received a pitiless answer. 
After him a host of persons were charged with treason. Annius Pollio, Appius Silenus, Scaurus Mamercus, Sabinus Calvisius, Vincianus too, coupled with Pollio, his father, men all of illustrious descent, some too of the highest political distinction. The senators were panic-stricken, for how few of their number were not connected by alliance or by friendship with this multitude of men of rank. Celsus, however, tribune of a city cohort, and now one of the prosecutors, saved Appius and Calvisius from the peril. The emperor postponed the cases of Pollio, Vinicianus, and Scaurus, intending to try them himself with the senate, not, however, without affixing some ominous marks to the name of Scaurus. Even women were not exempt from danger. Where they could not be accused of grasping at political power, their tears were made a crime. Vitia, an aged woman, mother of Fufius Geminus, was executed for bewailing the death of her son. Such were the proceedings in the Senate. It was the same with the Emperor. Vescularius Atticus and Julius Marinus were hurried off to execution, two of his oldest friends, men who had followed him to Rhodes, and been his inseparable companions at Capriae. Vescularius was his agent in the plot against Libo, and it was with the cooperation of Marinus that Sejanus had ruined Curtius Atticus. Hence there was all the more joy at the recoil of these precedents on their authors. About the same time, Lucius Piso, the pontiff, died a natural death—a rare incident in so high a rank. Never had he by choice proposed a servile motion, and, whenever necessity was too strong for him, he would suggest judicious compromises. His father, as I have related, had been a censor. He lived to the advanced age of eighty, and had won in Thrace the honour of a triumph but his chief glory rested on the wonderful tact with which, as city prefect, he handled an authority recently made perpetual, and all the more galling to men unaccustomed to obey it. In former days, when the kings and subsequently the chief magistrates went from Rome, an official was temporarily chosen to administer justice and provide for emergencies, so that the capital might not be left without government. It is said that Denter Romulius was appointed by Romulus, then Numa Marcius by Tullus Hostilius, and Spurius Lucretius by Tarquinius Superbus. Afterwards the consuls made the appointment. The shadow of the old practice still survives, whenever in consequence of the Latin festival some one is deputed to exercise the consul's functions. And Augustus, too, during the civil wars, gave Kilnius Maecenas, a Roman knight, charge of everything in Roman Italy. When he rose to supreme power, in consideration of the magnitude of the state and the slowness of legal remedies, he selected one of the ex-consuls to overawe the slaves, and that part of the population which, unless it fears a strong hand, is disorderly and reckless. Messala Corvinus was the first to obtain the office, which he lost within a few days, and as not knowing how to discharge it. After him, Taurus Statilius, though in advanced years, sustained it admirably, and then Piso, after twenty years of similar credit, was, by the Senate's decree, honoured with a public funeral. A motion was next brought forward in the Senate by Quintilianus, a tribune of the people, respecting an alleged book of the Sibyl. 
Caninius Gallus, a book of the College of the Fifteen, had asked that it might be received among the other volumes of the same prophetess by a decree on the subject. This having been carried by a division, the Emperor sent a letter in which he gently censured the tribune as ignorant of the ancient usage because of his youth. Gallus he scolded for having introduced the matter in a thin senate, notwithstanding his long experience in the science of religious ceremonies, without taking the opinion of the college, or having the verses read and criticised, as was usual by its presidents, though their authenticity was very doubtful. He also reminded him that, as many spurious productions were current under a celebrated name, Augustus had prescribed a day within which they should be deposited with the city praetor, and after which it should not be lawful for any private person to hold them. The same regulations, too, had been made by our ancestors after the burning of the Capitol in the Social War, when there was a search throughout Samos, Ilium, Erythrae, and even in Africa, Sicily, and the Italian colonies, for the verses of the Sibyl, whether there were but one or more, and the priests were charged with the business of distinguishing, as far as they could by human means, what were genuine. Accordingly, the book in question was now also submitted to the scrutiny of the College of the Fifteen. During the same consulship, a high price of corn almost brought on an insurrection. For several days there were many clamorous demands made in the theatre with an unusual freedom of language towards the Emperor. This provoked him to censure the magistrates and the Senate for not having used the authority of the State to put down the people. He named, too, the corn-supplying provinces, and dwelt on the far larger amount of grain imported by himself than by Augustus. So the Senate drew up a decree in the severe spirit of antiquity, and the consuls issued a not less stringent proclamation. The Emperor's silence was not, as he had hoped, taken as a proof of patriotism, but of pride. At the year's close, Geminius, Celsus, and Pompeius, Roman knights, fell beneath a charge of conspiracy. Of these, Caius Geminius, by lavish expenditure and a luxurious life, had been a friend of Sejanus, but with no serious result. Julius Celsus, a tribune, while in confinement, loosened his chain, and, having twisted it round him, broke his neck by throwing himself in an opposite direction. Rubrius Fabatus was put under surveillance on a suspicion that, in despair of the fortunes of Rome, he meant to throw himself on the mercy of the Parthians. He was, at any rate, found near the straits of the Sicily, and when dragged back by a centurion he assigned no adequate reason for his long journey. Still he lived on in safety, thanks to forgetfulness, rather than to mercy. In the consulship of Servius Galba and Lucius Sulla, the Emperor, after having long considered whom he was to choose to be husbands for his granddaughters, now that the maidens were of marriageable age, selected Lucius Cassius and Marcus Vinicius. Vinicius was of provincial descent. He was born at Cales, his father and grandfather having been consuls, and his family on the other side being of the rank of knights. He was a man of amiable temper and of cultivated eloquence. Cassius was of an ancient and honourable, though plebeian, house at Rome. 
Though he was brought up by his father under a severe training, he won esteem more frequently by his good nature than by his diligence. To him, and to Vinicius, the emperor married respectively Drusilla and Julia, Germanicus's daughters, and addressed a letter on the subject to the senate, with a slightly complimentary mention of the young men. He next assigned some very vague reasons for his absence, then passed to more important matters, the ill-will against him originating in his state policy, and requested that Macro, who commanded the Praetorians, with a few tribunes and centurions, might accompany him whenever he entered the senate-house. But, though a decree was voted by the senate on a liberal scale, and without any restrictions as to rank or numbers, he never so much as went near the walls of Rome, much less the state council, for he would often go round and avoid his native city by circuitous routes. Meanwhile, a powerful host of accusers fell with sudden fury on the class which systematically increased its wealth by usury, in defiance of a law passed by Caesar the Dictator, defining the terms of lending money, and of holding estates in Italy, a law long obsolete, because the public good is sacrificed to private interest. The curse of usury was indeed of old standing in Rome, and a most frequent cause of sedition and discord and it was therefore repressed even in the early days of a less corrupt morality. First, the twelve tables prohibited any one from exacting more than ten per cent, when previously the rate had depended upon the caprice of the wealthy. Subsequently, by a bill brought in by the tribunes, interest was reduced to half that amount, and finally compound interest was wholly forbidden. A check, too, was put by several enactments of the people, on evasions which, though continually put down, still, through strange artifices, reappeared. On this occasion, however, Gracchus, the praetor, to whose jurisdiction the inquiry had fallen, felt himself compelled by the number of persons endangered to refer the matter to the Senate. In their dismay the senators, not one of whom was free from similar guilt, threw themselves on the emperor's indulgence he yielded, and a year and six months were granted, within which every one was to settle his private accounts conformably to the requirements of the law. Hence followed a scarcity of money, a great shock being given to all credit. The current coin, too, in consequence of the conviction of so many persons and the sale of their property, being locked up in the imperial treasury or the public exchequer, to meet this, the Senate had directed that every creditor should have two-thirds his capital secured on estates in Italy. Creditors, however, were suing for payment in full, and it was not respectable for persons when sued to break faith. So, at first, there were clamorous meetings and importunate entreaties, then noisy applications to the Praetor's court, and the very device intended as a remedy, the sale and purchase of estates, proved the contrary as the usurers had hoarded up all their money for buying land. The facilities for selling were followed by a fall of prices, and the deeper a man was in debt, the more reluctantly did he part with his property, and many were utterly ruined. The destruction of private wealth precipitated the fall of rank and reputation, till at last the emperor interposed his aid by distributing throughout the banks a hundred million sesterces, and allowing freedom to borrow without interest for three years, provided the borrower gave security to the state in land to double the amount. Credit was thus restored, and gradually private lenders were found. 
purchase too of estates was not carried out according to the letter of the senate's decree rigour at the outset as usual with such matters becoming negligence in the end former alarms then returned as there was a charge of treason against Considius Proculus. While he was celebrating his birthday without a fear, he was hurried before the Senate, condemned, and instantly put to death. His sister, Sancia, was outlawed on the accusation of Quintus Pomponius, a restless spirit who pretended that he employed himself in this and like practices to win favour with the sovereign, and thereby alleviate the perils hanging over his brother, Pomponius Secundus. Pompeia Macrina, too, was sentenced to banishment. Her husband, Argolicus, and her father-in-law, Laco, leading men of Achaia, had been ruined by the emperor. Her father, likewise an illustrious Roman knight, and her brother, an ex-praetor, seeing their doom was near, destroyed themselves. It was imputed to them as a crime that their great-grandfather, Theophanes of Mytilene, had been one of the intimate friends of Pompey the Great, and that after his death Greek flattery had paid him divine honours. Sextus Marius, the richest man in Spain, was next accused of incest with his daughter, and thrown headlong from the Tarpeian rock. To remove any doubt that the vastness of his wealth had proved the man's ruin, Tiberius kept his gold-mines for himself, though they were forfeited to the state. Executions were now a stimulus to his fury, and he ordered the death of all who were lying in prison under accusation of complicity with Sejanus. There lay, singly or in heaps, the unnumbered dead, of every age and sex, the illustrious with the obscure. Kinfolk and friends were not allowed to be near them to weep over them, or even to gaze on them too long. Spies were set round them, who noted the sorrow of each mourner, and followed the rotting corpses till they were dragged to the Tiber, where, floating or driven on the bank, no one dared to burn or to touch them. The force of terror had utterly extinguished the sense of human fellowship, and, with the growth of cruelty, pity was thrust aside. End of Book 6, Part 1